Welcome to Consent Conversations at the Bird. Your hosts are Jennifer Storm and Carmen Brown. Hello, my name is Jennifer Storm, and I am the Director of Equity in Title IX here at Muhlenberg. And I want to welcome you back to Consent Conversations and acknowledge that we're changing our format a little bit. Uh, we started this program about a year ago because I really wanted to extend the conversation around the things that the Title IX and Prevention Office do. And so we thought, what better than to kind of put ourselves out on the airwaves and get on the radio? So we started as a radio program. And what we have found is that while that has been really successful and we're, we're really happy with it, we have a lot to say. And so we decided that a podcast format would probably fit our needs a little bit better. And that way we can really dive in deep into these conversations and we can, we're not kind of limited to a short time frame. So we're really excited to be back. Um, again, this is Consent Conversations at the Berg. I am one of your co-hosts, Jennifer Storm. I use she, her pronouns. And as always, I am joined by our Associate Director of Prevention Education, Carmen Brown. Hey, everyone. As Jen said, my name is Carmen Brown. I'm the Associate Director of Prevention Education here at Muhlenberg, and I use she, her pronouns. Well, welcome back. It's spring semester. Ooh. I know. <laughs> it's freezing, so it doesn't feel like spring. <laughs> Um, but we just uh, celebrated Groundhog Day, so apparently we have six more weeks of this. So we have to kind of settle in and so fun. be okay. Our last episode, and if you haven't had the opportunity to kind of catch up with us, definitely go to the Prevention Ed Instagram account. Go to Title IX's website. We have links to our episodes. So you can listen to the past episodes and then start listening to this new format on the podcast. What we did the last episode, though, is we really started diving into language and talking about its importance and its use and its frequent misuse. So we want to really kind of continue that conversation. We discussed a lot about Muhlenberg's equal opportunity non-discrimination policy. If you are not familiar with that, again, that is linked all over the place. It is certainly can be found on my Title IX website. It's really important to understand that policy because that's really what centers the entire focus of my office. And it really sets forth what I often say is it sets forth the values that I think we have as a community and how we want to live and how we want to treat people. So it also defines these legal terms, though, that we have to use and that we have to adhere to things like sexual misconduct, sexual assault, consent. We changed a lot of those terms. So we're now using non-consensual sexual contact, non-consensual sexual intercourse. We talked about the differences between feeling uncomfortable and unsafe, right? Because there are big differences there. And we really want to help educate folks to understand the difference between somebody just maybe making you feel uncomfortable because you haven't maybe had those conversations yet to discuss boundaries or, you know, maybe somebody crossed a boundary, but they did it um, unintentionally. And yes, it made you uncomfortable. But what, were you unsafe in that moment? If you were able to then say, hey, this made me uncomfortable and I wasn't OK with what happened. And then that behavior stopped. You really aren't unsafe in that moment. You were made uncomfortable. Uh, and so we really wanted to kind of dive into those differences. And we did. Adversely, we also talked about unwelcomed behavior versus what really is assault. And that's another big uh, topic that we dove into. And, and we gave a lot of really great examples. And, you know, sometimes behaviors come at us that we weren't anticipating that maybe, you know, Another person picked up on, on signs or cues that they thought we were giving, that we weren't giving. You know, maybe you're dating somebody or you're just casually spending time with someone and they advance in a way that all of a sudden you find yourself thinking, oh, I didn't, I wasn't ready for that. That would be what we call an unwelcome behavior. 
that is not an assault, right? I mean, if somebody jumped from kind of like trying to hold your hand or putting their arm around you or going in for a kiss uh, to like immediately putting their hands down your pants or aggressively kind of attacking you, then yes, we're in the area of assault. If we're talking about those behaviors, though, that just kind of progress as a relationship deepens and develops and where boundaries haven't been clearly communicated and defined, we would call that unwelcome behavior. And again, just like being uncomfortable versus being unsafe, then once you communicate to that person like, whoa, I'm not ready for that or that that's not where I thought this was going. And you have that communication. If the behavior stops, then we don't get into these places where we would be looking at violations of our equal opportunity policy. So we really wanted to get down to the nitty gritty of those because they're really important differences. And we want to make sure that our community is well educated so that they know what's going on. We also talked about impact versus intent. Impact versus intent really is about, you know, someone kind of maybe naturally following a progression that they think is is happening. And then they engage in a behavior that they're thinking is not only something they want to engage in, but they think it's something that you want to engage in also. So they're intent is is pure it is it is not malicious it is not malice and it offends the other person right whether this is through language whether this is through behavior so the impact on that other person who's been offended is real and is is very much an experience that that person is having and it's valid and it's real and then we have to look at the intent of the other person and so we talked a lot about this, and I think we could talk, we could probably do a whole episode on this, Carmen, mm-hmm. um, because it is, it is nuanced, and yet it's really important. Intent doesn't negate an impact, like, ever at all. And yet, someone's in- intent, though, can really help explain, heal, and restore the impact that has happened. So if somebody uses language that they didn't realize was offensive, or if somebody engages in a behavior that they didn't realize was unwelcome and they say like I am so genuinely sorry like I had no idea or I didn't know that that term was offensive or this is something I grew up hearing and so when it came out of my mouth I didn't even realize because I've been so programmed right there there's so much unlearning that we talked about too that we have to do in places of higher education that can help explain and restore the impact that that person has felt again always honoring the impact that that person is experiencing should never be diminished. It is completely valid. And we can hold these two things at the same time. And then if we can hold these two things at the same time, what was somebody's intent versus what was the impact, then we can get into these places where we can heal and we can restore. Now, sometimes someone's intent is malicious. Sometimes someone's intent is harmful. And the impact is equally as offensive and great. And we need to hold that person accountable, right? So maybe these restorative dialogues are not the place we can go. So we, you know, at the campus here in Muhlenberg, we have so many different options to deal with anything that would be perceived as a violation of our EO policy, always with that eye towards understanding, learning, and and helping people find a sense of belonging here, helping to give people opportunities for what they feel is justice. So today we kind of want to just continue that conversation a bit and discuss language around those who commit harm versus predators, right? These are two big kind of labels. I hear a lot of labels being placed on people. And as we know, in our society, labels can be really, really harmful. And they can also stick with a person like Lou, ultimately making them very hard to shake. 
um, in particular around sexual violence, terms like assailant, predator, rapist, they're valid terms in describing people who have assaulted people, right? In fact, they are terms that are baked into our criminal justice system, into our vernacular of what we know to be the language around sexual assault. For people who have intentionally preyed upon multiple victims and those who have raped others, those terms are appropriate. They get applied. Sometimes they get applied judiciously. Sometimes they just get applied in the public sphere, in the media. I do, though, just want to caution and remind us that all of our definitions above when figuring out how we apply these terms and we tell our stories in ways that are healing and impactful to survivors, we also want to ensure that we're not misusing or inflaming these labels in this language that will then actually do harm to others. So this is the biggest issue that we're really seeing right now in Title IX. And, and quite frankly, it's not unique to Muhlenberg College. It isn't. It's not unique to this area, to this region. It is across the country. We are seeing just a real misuse and in some ways weaponization of language. And this is such an important discussion to have, as you mentioned when we were talking about and you were reflecting on what we've done previously in episodes, this is just another part of learning. And college is all about learning. We do a lot here. And in the process of that, we never want to misuse or intentionally use labeling language in a way that's harmful towards someone when it isn't necessarily applicable or appropriate. So can you help us to define some of the terms that you mentioned so we have a clearer understanding? Certainly. So let's start with sexual assault, right? And, and rape, because these are terms that are required for us to use. They are terms that are baked into our criminal and juvenile justice system. They are terms that the police use. They're the terms that you hear on the TV shows. And those are acts that are committed by somebody who has assaulted you. You could say an assailant, right? An offender. Those are like commonly used terms. What we're seeing is this misunderstanding and this misuse of those terms and when those behaviors happen with identifying people as sexual predators. Sexual predator is a very different term. It is a very different category. It is not a crime, right? Sexual, like, let me be very clear here. You can't be charged with being a sexual predator, right? You're charged with rape. You're charged with assault. A sexual predator status comes when this person has been evaluated, has gone through the criminal justice system. There's an extensive background looked at this person. And truly, it comes when somebody has a psychological examination and it has been determined that they have a psychological abnormality that leads them to prey on other people. Now, this is, again, this is kind of very keenly done in the criminal and juvenile justice system. Certainly, you know, and it's a legal term of art. Certainly, there can be stories where we hear of somebody who has preyed upon children and maybe they haven't gone through the criminal justice system. So that label has not been applied to them. That doesn't mean that that label doesn't apply, right? So we know a lot of people out there who have perpetually sexually offended upon people. And we would we would label those people as sexual predators. Right. But maybe just didn't have the opportunity. Like those victims didn't have the opportunity to go through a criminal justice system because of statute limitations and other reasons. There can be people on college campuses that are known to maybe, you know, intoxicate people to the point of incapacitation and then take advantage of them. And if they are, are if there are multiple instances of that. We would certainly say, OK, this person has predatory behavior. And then we have a whole other set of policies that we can kind of apply to that person. First and foremost, making sure that our community is safe. So if we think that somebody has a pattern of being a predator, we will remove that person from our campus. 
I can tell you that in my time here, that is something that is very, very rarely identified and or done. There's this misunderstanding around sexual predator and an individual who maybe is just maybe misreading cues, maybe uncertain of their own boundaries, doesn't have the language yet to communicate, and maybe did something in one instance and is now really trying to learn from that and really trying to move forward. We're seeing on campus those individuals being labeled as sexual predators. Or maybe like it's the person at the bar who like hits on a lot of people, right? Like they're just a little overly confident, overly aggressive. That's not a sexual predator. Might be like a, a slimy person, right? I don't want to even gender this. Um, but that person's not a sexual predator. They're just somebody who maybe needs to tamp it down a little bit and learn proper boundaries. So we really want to talk about this because this weaponization of the term sexual predator has been incredibly damaging on campus. And again, this is not unique to Muhlenberg. We're seeing this across the country and it's happening here on our campus. I've seen it on Yik Yak. I've seen it on TikTok, on Instagram stories. I've seen students who have maybe made mistakes or otherwise gotten themselves into situations that they now regret and are really trying to heal from. Or I've seen it applied even in situations where students did absolutely nothing wrong. And now all of a sudden they're being blacklisted and they're being labeled a sexual predator. I really want to make students aware of how damaging this is because that's not a label that you can shake very easily and it can stay with you for the rest of your life. What goes on the internet lives on the internet. It doesn't ever go away. And I don't care if you're sending it in Snapchat or you know you think that your message deletes, nothing ever truly deletes from the internet and everything is retrievable. So we now live in a world where employers are checking social media, they're Googling your names, they're going down these rabbit holes and they can discover this information that can completely destroy somebody's future. And it's also really, really, really hard to clean up your internet history. It's almost impossible. It takes a tremendous amount of money and very skilled individuals to do this. So we say all this to caution students, you know, before you post that video, before you start talking behind someone's back, before you start using these labels to really, really think and maybe get some more information. I think what also tends to happen on college campuses, especially at a place like Muhlenberg, we're very small. We're a tiny community. Most people know each other. Word spreads really fast. And people tend to just believe things without really having all the information. And in my world, in Title IX world, very specifically, you're never going to have all the information. Only I am going to have that and the individuals that are involved, right? So you might get a story from somebody and you might get a story from someone else. And I guarantee you there is another story there. And so we just really need to be mindful of how we apply language and how we use it. And I think you bring up some really poignant points to be alliterative for a second that we never quite know the whole story. Mm-hmm. We are merely bystanders in a lot of situations. So I think what Jen and I really want to encourage all students is to take a step back before, as she said, Choosing to post a video, choosing to post something on Yik Yak, choosing to put something on Instagram, Snapchat, whatever it may be, because you don't necessarily know the entire story around what's happening in front of you. I also think on top of that, if it is someone else potentially being harmed, we don't know what that person might actually want in their healing journey. And this might, posting something on social media, might make things worse for them and more difficult for them 
to then be a potential talk of the campus when maybe they weren't necessarily feeling unsafe or it wasn't necessarily assault, but maybe they were feeling uncomfortable and it was unwelcomed behavior. And maybe they went ahead and talked to the other person and they talked through that and had those conversations as we discussed. So just take a step back sometime. And I, I know our society, I think it has a tendency to just want to document everything. And I think sometimes we just need to take a little bit of time and a little bit of thought before we actually move forward and do that. Absolutely. Even in cases where there is like a violent act of assault, I mean, I'm thinking of Chanel Miller right now, and she recently penned a memoir, which is really outside of the victim impact statement that she gave. And this is the case that was out of um, California where, um, you know, she was she was assaulted behind a dumpster at a college. Um, and it was, you know, Brock Turner was the was the uh, alleged and now kind of convicted offender in that case. If, like she writes so eloquently about how so many other people took up her mantle and like became her voice because they thought it was their duty and they thought they were protecting her. And really what you're doing in those instances is you're taking that that survivor's voice away from them and you're applying it in a way that is unique to you. And quite frankly, it can it can do a lot of harm. Now, it's different if a survivor says, I don't yet have the ability to have my voice yet. I want you to be my voice. That's completely different. But I have seen on this campus where there have been things that have happened that have rightfully harmed students. And that student did not want people to know. And then, you know, a well-intended friend or roommate or person who heard about it then took it upon themselves to kind of blast it out to the community in an effort to, like, protect other people. But what they didn't realize that they were doing was significant harm to the original victim. So always just be super mindful about repeating what you hear. If you do have a close friend who confides in you that something happened to them, ask them first before taking it upon yourself to make it your mission to kind of spread their story or protect the community. I've seen a lot of like what we've been almost calling vigilante justice on campus, where other students who may have been harmed in similar ways hear about someone else being harmed and it's triggering. It 150% is. It's, it brings all that stuff up for you. And then sometimes I think what that can also do is cloud your judgment a little bit. And so then while you're advocating in the name of this other person, sometimes you're actually advocating for your ability to be heard because you maybe didn't have that ability before, which, you know, we now have great forums and events. We have Take Back the Night coming up in April that will hopefully give survivors spaces and places to safely have their voice. But we say all this just to be sensitive, A, to survivors' experiences, to validate those experiences, and to also be careful. And, and we don't want to live in this community where we're unintentionally doing other harm. Did you want to say anything else about that, Carmen? No. All right. We're going to dive into like some scenarios. Yeah. Um, so obviously a big part of my job is to work with those who come forward who, who believe harm has been committed against them. And my career, my 20-year career, has been doing that work as well as then also working in restorative justice. So I wholeheartedly support survivors, all survivors. I want them to feel seen, heard, protected, and supported. And in this role, I also owe that same obligation to those who are accused of committing those, that harm. And this balance is really at the heart of Title IX. And finding that balance in ensuring that all community members have access to services, support, due process, and justice as they each define that. That's really about treating folks equitably, right? It's, it's about meeting people where they are 
And everyone has a different story. Everyone has unique needs. And not every case is black and white. And so my job is to resource. My job is not to apply judgment, but my job is to resource everyone involved and then follow whatever paths those individuals need. Now, in these cases, I put the complainant in the driver's seat. So if you've ever worked with me, you've heard me say this. When a complainant, which that's the term we use for survivor, victim, person who's been harmed, impacted person, in our kind of world, they're called the complainant. It's just uh, Title IX language that we have to use. I don't necessarily agree with it. And then the individual who has been alleged to have caused harm or potentially committed that harm, we call that person the respondent. So again, don't, uh, don't necessarily love this language, but it's the language I have to use per the regulations. So we put the complainant in the driver's seat because it's their experience, it's their report, it's their story. And then if they, we give them options, right? So all students have multiple paths. They get to choose that path. If that path becomes one where they want the college to engage in some type of justice, whether that's restorative justice, transformative justice, justice in, in the pure sense of pun- being punitive and sanctioning, we will follow those paths. And then that's when I get involved with the respondent. And I will then also say to them, here are the options that you have. And I walk side by side with both of these students, faculty or staff, and kind of let them know, here are all your options. And here are the college obligations, right? Because we can't always say 100% you can dictate exactly what's going to happen. The college also has legal obligations. We have requirements. We have policies. We have procedures. We treat Title IX cases very different than the criminal justice system, and we do that intentionally. So the criminal justice system is going to be very bifurcated. It's very much victim comes forward, police report, individual is arrested. Then we get tossed into this like justice system that really sets two people up to not have an opportunity to understand or restore or have an alternative resolution. That's your traditional criminal justice. On a college campus, obviously, we're dealing with young people. We know neurobiology tells us that young people don't necessarily always make the best decisions. We know that frontal lobe development is not fully uh, there, even once we send them off and they graduate into the world. So we understand and appreciate that impulsivity and a lack of understanding and a lack of education plays into behaviors. We also know that colleges are where students take risks, and we want them to. We want students to take healthy risks so that they can kind of begin to grow outside of their own bubble. They can begin to shape their understandings and they can test their own boundaries. So with all of that in mind, Title IX was really established to enable students to learn, to make mistakes, to learn from those mistakes, for students who are impacted to have justice in a way that feels comfortable and safe for them, that isn't so prescriptive that it looks just like the criminal justice system. Really, truly in the criminal justice system, victims don't have a lot of, they don't have a lot of discretion. They don't have a lot of say. They don't have a lot of voice. They're mainly treated like evidence and they're dictated to what happens. We don't want that for our victims and survivors on college campuses. We want to hand them paths that feel good for them or have them come up with a creative path that looks good to them, right? And adversely, we want to help educate individuals who unintentionally do harm because that is the majority of cases on campuses. It is unintentional harm. That doesn't negate the harm, doesn't negate the impact. And there's a learning experience for that person to hopefully never do it again. There are some statistics out there that say that 60 to 80 percent 
of all young offenders on college campuses who offend and then are, are told about that, never do it again. And that's, that's important. That's hopeful. That's good. Again, doesn't negate the impact of that original act. And we have to have a process for that original act. So that, all of that is kind of how Title IX operates. It's how we kind of work through finding paths to justice, creating alternatives for, for folks, and, and really making sure that we do thorough intakes, thorough assessments. And then, yeah, sometimes that means we're doing investigations into allegations and we are kind of setting forth sanctions as outlined in our equal opportunity policy. Not everything is, you know, let's hug it out or let's talk it out. Sometimes it's no, you, this was significant harm and there are, there are consequences to that harm. And hopefully through those consequences, you also then learn that this behavior was so wrong and that you'll never do it again. Thank you so much, Jen, for talking us through those things. Before I get into kind of some of the other stuff that we want to bring to everyone's attention, that if you ever have any questions, we know these topics are not easy to deal with and that you're figuring them out. And that's why we're here, not only in this particular podcast and consent conversations and kind of bringing these issues and these topics to the forefront, but we are here every day. If you want to chat further, please don't hesitate to reach out to either of us. If you have questions, if you're unsure about something, we always serve as resources, especially to help students learn what's okay, what's not okay. How do they kind of go about things, especially when it comes to interactions with other people? So to kind of wrap up this episode, we also want to bring attention to different things taking place right now. So we know that this episode is airing right after Valentine's Day. And we want to take a little bit of time to discuss healthy relationships and the importance of them not only on Valentine's Day, but every day, 365, 24-7, all the time. A healthy relationship means that both you and your partner communicate openly and honestly with one another. You're respectful, trusting, honest with each other. You can have personal time away from each other and enjoy that, but you can also make mutual choices with one another that involve compromise and leave you both feeling like you're satisfied and getting something that you want and you deserve. So overall, you and your partner make decisions together and can openly discuss whatever you're dealing with, relationship problems, sexual choices, just generally having conversations. Another big part of relationships that we talk about a lot, and I'm pretty sure we've talked about it on this show before, is boundaries, both setting your own and respecting others. Boundaries are huge, not only in relationships, but just in everyday life. And we set them all the time and tend not to recognize it, or they tend to kind of get put on the back burner when it comes to relationships. And that's the one space that I think they're probably most important. So a boundary is a means of establishing one's own sense of safety and enjoyment in a relationship. So we encourage thinking about, first off, setting your own boundaries. When you think about this, keep a few things in mind. Know your own comfort level. Don't be afraid to communicate openly and honestly with the other person. They're not mind readers, and we don't expect anyone to be. So we can only know what each other is thinking if we're open and honest with one another. Keep in mind that you can change your mind at any time. And often you will, right? Boundaries change and develop over time as we get older, as we have different experiences, and that's absolutely acceptable. And when in doubt, talk it out. I know we say that all the time here too, but I think we probably can't say it enough. And when we think about respecting someone else's boundaries, remember to listen to them, truly listen, like engaged listening. Reaffirm with them. So if they tell you something, repeat it back to them. Say, I hear you saying this. Is that right? 
or is this what you're telling me? And that way, if you're not necessarily understanding it in the way that they're putting it across, that gives them the opportunity to say to you, well, actually, this is kind of what I meant. And you're creating and continuing a really important conversation. Never negotiate with a no, obviously, very straightforward. And if harm is caused, as we've talked about, sometimes it is, right? That impact versus intent. If harm is caused, take responsibility for it. Recognize it and promise to do better. Also, the last thing we want to bring attention to, this episode is airing during Black History Month, and there are some amazing and impactful events happening across campus. So last year's events were organized around an uplifting theme, a love letter to Blackness, and they celebrated Black American culture in a multitude of ways. So this year, to continue on and expand that celebration, many of the Black History Month's events will honor Black activists across the globe and will be organized under the following theme of a love letter to global Black activism, celebrating agents of change around the world, which I think is just an amazing theme. And some of the events include, on February 16th, there will be a keynote event with Dr. Ruha Benjamin from 7 to 8.30 p.m. in Miller Forum. On February 24th at 4 p.m., there's going to be a Neptune Frost film screening at the Civic Theater. And Neptune Frost is a 2021 science fiction romantic musical film, which I think just combines all of the best things which follows the relationship between Neptune and Matalusa, who are Colton miners whose love leads a hacker collective. The Office of Multicultural Life Celebration of Black Activism at Muhlenberg is going to take place on February 27th at 2 p.m. Learning from Changemakers, a conversation with Black activists on February 27th will take place from 5.30 to 7. And a follow-up workshop to that, Becoming Changemakers, an activism workshop, will take place on February 28th from 5.30 to 7 p.m. We have, obviously, I think this is, I think, just a small portion of what is going to be going on on campus on Black History Month. Obviously, keep an eye out on Instagram and various social media outlets because I'm sure there will be more popping up sponsored by various departments and groups across campus. So we highly, highly encourage you to get out there and get to these because we know that they are going to be hugely impactful. And I think it has to be noted that obviously during this time with what's going on in the national headlines, this is a really hard time. So let's be honest, it's it's never a great time for people of color mm-hmm. in our society just due to oppression and marginalization and the world that we live with systematic racism. When we see lives taken in such brutal ways as we have recently, it just further exacerbates everything. And so please understand and appreciate right now that the individuals on campus who are people of color are feeling this differently to be extra sensitive and respectful, right? Should always be sensitive and respectful. Understand that anger or rage or um, fear or intense emotional response that you may be seeing is 150% valid. And if you don't know how to be a supportive ally, Contact the Office of Multicultural Affairs, contact Brooke Vick, contact someone on the campus that you think could be a good mentor for you before you try to say something that you might regret Mm. and then do further harm. Black History Month nationally, the theme is Black resistance. And I think more than ever right now, that is being truly felt and truly depicted and truly necessary. So I just want to take a, a moment to kind of acknowledge and recognize that. 
So as always, we, we love these conversations. We really want to hear from you. Now that we're in this podcast format, we have more time. We've got some more space that we can give to conversations. We can bring people in. We can take questions. So please know that you can reach out to myself. My email is jenniferstorm at muhlenberg.edu. Carmen's is Carmen Brown at muhlenberg.edu. You can also reach out to us through our Instagram account. We really want to hear from you. We want to know, do you like these conversations? Are they helping? Have we said something that pissed you off? Please let us know. We want to engage in healthy conflict and healthy communication because there can't be true communication about consent without conflict. It's Mm -hmm. just not possible. So we really want to hear from you. We hope you enjoyed the show. And as always, when in doubt, talk it out. Consent Conversations at the Berg is a production of Muhlenberg College, the Office of Equity in Title IX, the Department of Prevention Education, and WMUH Allentown. This program is recorded and produced in the studios of WMUH Allentown, Pennsylvania.